Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Our series that we're starting in today is going to be a three-part series. It doesn't mean that if you miss a part that you're lost. Not at all. It, it does mean that we're going to be taking a journey, and this is the first leg of the journey. And anybody remember the last series? What was our text? What, what book were we, did we just la- spend the last six weeks on? Anybody remember the book? Philippians. And we did a study on the book of Philippians, and it's actually when we were in the book of Philippians that there was a text there I thought we would just sit on for a while. And it's found in Philippians chapter 3. So would you go there? Chapter 3, if you got your devices, your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we are going to pick it up, and this is going to be our, this is the, this is the tethering post by which we are going to be talking for the next few weeks. Again, I just want to extend, uh, good to see some of you, some of you have coming back off of uh, a time every week, virtually, somebody's popping back in, and we just, uh, so wonderful to see that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Can we just read this together? You don't have to stand. Remain seated, but can you just lift your voice together with me? One voice. Let's read it together. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, we do desire that God, what Paul was talking about, that we can put our name there and say, this is me. Help us to hear what you are saying today, this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would note that particular text, again, this is again our, our, our theme. He says, he doesn't yet consider he's taken hold of it. There's an it there. He's like, it's something. Not just life in general. There's something he is still reaching towards. He continues, but one thing. One thing. He's pressing ahead for that it. He's pressing onward to a goal, what that it is, for which God has called me. Meaning, you can put your name there. He didn't say where God has called us. He wasn't just saying, you know, you know, he wouldn't be waving his hand saying us. He said, this is where God has called me, Paul. And I, you can put your name in there. This is where God has called you. You can put your name in there. Me, Wayne, put your name. Which God has called you. We all have a specific calling in life. Do you believe that? Okay, you don't have to wag your head. You can just... Do you all, do you believe we all have a specific call? We are all called. We're all children of God. But Paul's identifying that there's something that he is responsible for uniquely, and if he doesn't do it, it won't get done. He's responsible. God has assigned him something. The series what I want to share today is called Invading the Impossible. And you get a picture, and I've done that strategically, invading the impossible. Invading, you get the picture of there's a progression involved. Invading. 
It's not like stumbling upon. It's not checking in on. It's invading. You have a picture like an army coming in. You invade. Whatever's in front, you're invading. And you're invading what? Something impossible. Something that normally could not be conquered. And that is the theme. And today, the particular topic I want to talk about today is hold nothing back. And it's taken around a passage of Scripture. I invite you to go there. We're going to read it in just a minute. Let's go to a second. You can lose Philippians chapter 3. Go with me, please, to 2 Kings. Go to the Old Testament. Take your Bibles. 2 Kings chapter 13. Go ahead and find it because we're going to read that in just a moment. As you are turning to 2 Kings, uh, don't lift your hands. It's a question, but I do want you in your mind. When you were in school... Were you a higher than average student, average student, lower than average student? Again, I don't want you raising your hands for either of them, nor do you point at one another. You know, school has, is, is one area. It's, it's regarding academics, and I'm not quite sure that the way we try to mark whether or not a person moves to the next level is the best. I think there's other margins by which we can mark it by. But in school, I, I would get on report card at times where the teacher would say, send it home to my parents, and of course they had to sign off. The teacher would say, uh, uh, Wayne could have done better. And then it would say that next part, the part he needs to apply himself. Right, And it was true. At the time, I argued it. But it was true. He needs to apply. Therefore, he should have been here, but he, he wasn't. He could have been. The teacher knew it. And deep inside, I knew it. He, need, he needed to have applied himself. Average. The picture of average is where you're in the middle. You haven't exceeded, you're somewhere in the middle. I'm not talking academics here, I'm talking about being average in whatever it is. Just being in the middle somewhere. And average too often defines us. Too many times. Matter of fact, I don't really believe God made you average when you were born. But I do believe that many of us choose to live a life of average. I say that again. I don't believe God's design for you from moment get-go was average. It wasn't His design. Because you just look at the character and person of God, it's not average. There's nothing average about Him. And He's created us in His likeness. and His. So you weren't, you weren't made to be average. But too, too many times we choose. We choose. To be average. We choose to live beneath your capability. You choose to live beneath your calling. To be above average actually demands a choice. It requires you to defy the law of average. Yeah, there's a law of average. It's the law of just getting by. But we actually have a choice to defy that law of average or to not thus be average. Just average. 
part of the problem of living average is how we deal with failure. And sometimes we are average because we don't risk everything, and you may not quite attain, and so you just don't risk so much, you pull back to average. But if you always, if you always default to average, then it will separate you from moments of greatness, because you're always just average. The series I'm starting today is about God's call on our life, as Paul was talking in Philippians 3. God's call. He calls us to not underestimate how much He actually wants to do in and through you. Don't underestimate. Don't underestimate that what you're doing right now. Here's a big question. Are you honestly completing what God designed you to do? That's the question I'm asking. Am I actually completing this? Am I actually fulfilling what He called me to do? Or have I succumbed to the law of average? Because there's a tendency to take a look at somebody who's another brother or sister in the faith and say, well, what about them? It's called average. Don't compare yourself to that because it will bring your grade down. So the question comes down to, uh, do I understand that God really wants to do something above average in me? And me? The series I'm starting today is about having, first of all, a prayer life that destroys hell. Not a lot of people have prayer lives that destroy hell. You know, I've, I've been in conversations with some folk, and even this past week and a couple of occasions, where we may be reading increasing scriptures. You might be increasing your dose of Christian literature, maybe messages. But how has the prayer, how has it been going into the throne room of God in the place of prayer, you and Him, not thinking about Him, not throwing a prayer before your meal, but really praying that where you are in the place where in that place with Him, that you are defying being an average person. You are shaking hell to loose some situations that need to be loosed. No, you're not going to go for average. You're going to destroy what hell has brought. It's about having a daily influence in our worlds that establishes the kingdom of God around us in a way that an average person will never do. The series I'm starting today is about holding nothing back. Leave nothing undone that was yours to do. Leave nothing undone. The series we're starting today is to arrive at the final moments of your life and looking back, you have no regrets. That's why I really believe that no matter where we are in life, young, midlife, older in life, that when wherever our life begins to wind down, sometimes it's winding down, sometimes it stops very quickly. But that that moment, we can look back and say there's no regrets. Because I defied average. I didn't just coast. It's not about being a hero. It's not about being famous. It's not about everybody knowing you. It is about being everything the Apostle Paul talked about here. He says, there's still something I have to take hold of. There's an it there. There's an it I must have. The one thing that God has called me for. He continues, he says, I press to win that thing in which God has called me. 
And when he says heavenward, it doesn't mean that one day in the great by and by you'll get it. No, you are heavenward on your way. That means right now. Because once you die, that part of the game's over. So right now, we're still in the game. Right now, we're still in the place to defy the laws of average when it comes to the faith. He has called us and created us to be more than that. So, there's two stories I want to look at. The first is found. You have it there, 2 Kings chapter 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. Now, Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Verse 16. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Verse 17. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Apex. Verse 18, then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it. Only three times. Verse 20. Elisha died and was buried. Let me talk about this story. I'm going to recap it. In this story, Jehoash is the king of Israel. Two tribes. There's actually 12, but the top one was the king was Israel. The bottom was Judah. He was the king of Israel. Israel had been at war with a number of other sectors of people. The kingdom here was being threatened. And king, uh, the king here was facing a battle, a serious battle. And in all the battles he had been facing, he had an advantage. Jehoash had an advantage. And the advantage that he had was a guy by the name of Elisha. He was a prophet, a man of God, who walked with God, knew the mind and will of God. And that was his advantage. It was his, it was his winning card in the battles. He found out, though, that Elisha's life, that Elisha was suffering an illness. We're not told what it was. And it would eventually lead to Elisha's death. Jehoash goes and he weeps when he finds out the information. He weeps over Elisha. Not, he's not weeping so much because he really cares for Elisha. Because he's a wicked king. He's weeping because he's about, to use, he's about to lose his best advantage. He's about to lose his best advantage. And so he weeps. His protection is soon going to be lost. Elisha here is God's symbol of strength and power. And so Joash asks for advice. Elisha gives him a series of very interesting instructions. Let's just look at these instructions again. Can we go back to those instructions? Here they are. Elisha, here's the instruction. First one, Elisha says to the king, get a bow and some arrows. The king does. Elisha says, take the bow in your hands. The king does. When the king raises the bow and arrow, Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands. Elisha says, open the east window. The king does. Elisha says, shoot. The king does. 
As the king shoots the arrow, Elisha gets a prophecy. He declares, he speaks, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. And he interprets. Probably the king looked at him with confusion. What was it you said again? He interprets, you will completely destroy the Aramanians at Aphek. It's good news. Then Elisha tells the king, take the arrows, plural, take the arrows. So he does. Elisha tells him, strike the ground. So he does. One, two, three, he stops. Now this is where the story gets interesting. The scripture tells us, almost unexpectedly, if you're reading through, it's like 19 jumps out at us. Because when he stops, Elisha loses it. He's mad at him. He goes into a rage. Says the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now, but now, you'll defeat it just three times. And right after he says this, he dies. He's buried. There's something in the story that is not quickly caught. We can keep reading and you don't hear any more of this. When Elisha talks to him regarding the, the whole thing taking place here, it wasn't so much that what the king was about to do was going to determine the future. What, even though there's truth to that, what happens is Elisha's revealing what's already going on inside the king's heart. So as we begin to look down the story, as we begin to look at this whole thing, whether he struck the ground three times or six times, the question is, is, really, is that such a big deal? And often questions, and I've struggled with these questions, what's the big deal three or six? Where in the Bible does six show that it's the right number and three is not? How could the king's future be so determined by Three or six. And if it was such a big deal, here it is. If it was such a big deal, Elisha, why didn't you tell him ahead of time? Have you asked that? Elisha, why didn't you tell him ahead of time? If, tell him how many times he was to strike it. Give him some more instructions other than just the instructions. Strike the ground. That's all he gave him. Why didn't you tell him more if it would have meant more? Up to this moment, the king was doing really good. Up to the moment, the king had done everything asked of him. But Elisha told him, the last part of the instructions, strike the ground with the arrows. Now, in the first service, I had somebody come up to me, and they were um, uh, very proficient in archery. And they said that frequently the quiver would be 30 arrows in a king's quiver. And when the king would go to battle in the chariot, there would often be two quivers the king had access. He would have access up to 60 arrows to be shot. So when spoken, take the arrows, it was like a bundle. Take the arrows and strike the ground. And here, Elisha tells him to strike the ground with the arrows, but here, very strategically, the prophet left the instruction open-ended didn't give any more instructions. And then after the king did what he did, the prophet was angry. Got mad at him. 
Clearly, there's so much more happening here than to meet the eye of the readers 2,000 or 3,000 years later. This is no small oops mistake. This is not an oops in the story. The king began with the promise for victory. But by the time this little story is done, he's a recipient of average. He could have had it all, but he ended with much, much less in the story. And it centers around one decision. It wasn't because of what he did he got average. It's because what he did proved he was a man of average. What he did evidenced what was already going on inside the king. He struck the ground three times and stopped. Put another way, he's a king who quits. The text doesn't tell us why he quit. I can assume. You can assume. I I come up with three. Maybe he quit because he was tired. He was tired after the third one. Maybe he quit after three because it looks stupid. I mean, that's not what you do with arrows. It looks stupid striking a ground with the arrows. Maybe he quit because he thought it was beneath him. I mean, here's the king standing with the prophet, striking the ground with a bunch of arrows. It beneath him. I don't know. We're not told. I don't think we're told because really we're to put us in there. What causes you and I to quit? What causes us to quit? What causes you and I to settle for less? What causes us to be just average? To not really go after, just average. For Elisha, the fact that the king stopped striking the ground was connected to him not wanting victory bad enough. I wonder how many victories are lost before the battle even began. battle hadn't even begun. The victory was already lost. I wonder how much more good God desires to usher into the world today that has been thwarted by lack of ambition. We just didn't want it enough. What is it about us that stops us before we get to the finish? What mistakes quitting for failure that settles for the less? I mean, I see this in me. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. I see this as a part of me when I've prayed too little. Why did I quit when I quit? When I expected too little. I had, some, I had a belief. I saw a dream. I saw something. But I quit. What caused me to quit there? Did God ask me to quit? Or did I just quit? And I've done too little. Not enough was done. Have you experienced that? I think many of us hear God saying, take your arrows and shoot. But much like the king, we never did get the command, stop striking. We heard the shoot, but we never got the command to stop striking the ground. We stopped before we're finished. We stopped before God was finished. You know, arrows are not meant for decor. When an arrow is made for battle, an arrow is meant for one thing. It's meant for battle. It's not made to look good. It's not made to put on your mantle. It's not made to put on your wall and go, whoa, look at the arrow. 
It's not made to go around and show all the people how great your arrows look. There's one purpose an arrow is made. The purpose is battle. And if the arrow is not used in battle, if that is not expended in battle, the arrow never met its destiny. Its destiny was for battle. The question I think I must answer myself this morning is, am I the kind of person who strikes three times and stops? Or am I the kind of person... When commanded to strike my arrows, I keep striking, I keep striking, I keep striking until they begin to break off, and I keep striking, and, I, and then they break, and they go into splinters, and I keep striking until I have nothing but a toothpick left. And then I stop. Or do I strike three times? I don't think three is the number. It's, it's about stopping premature. It's stopping before I'm told to stop. It's stopping at average because I don't feel I should be going on. And so I quit. You know, it's curious that Elisha had the king shoot the first arrow through the window. And then he was told to grab the remaining arrows and begin to strike them. Do you see the sequence in that? The first instruction was, take the arrow and shoot them through the window. I think it was symbolic of how God would bring victory way beyond the king's control. It wasn't because the king had a great army. It wasn't because the king was a particularly great king. It was like God supernaturally, beyond anything the king could do, could accomplish things done. I mean, isn't that our God? Our God is above and beyond. He is more than able. When problems arise and we hit the point of average, it's not because of his inability. And so the picture of the first arrow and Elisha's instructions, open the window to the east and fire the arrow. When the arrow was fired, it went on probably beyond where the king could see it land. And the picture here was symbolic. God can do abundantly more than what you ask or believe. He can bring victory. He can go beyond your sphere. My sphere is right here. His sphere is everything else. You see, an arrow is only good once it's released. Something about an arrow that's a little different than most other weapons of warfare, a sword for instance. When I have a sword and you go to battle in a sword, the sword's only good if it's still in my hand. An arrow's only good if you release it. An arrow's only good if it leaves me. An arrow has to go. And the picture here was not a picture of a sword or a knife or a dagger. The picture was a picture of an arrow that was shot. And as the arrow is shot, it leaves my sphere into the impossible, invading the impossible. Won't do any good if it stays in my quiver. <laughs> Won't do any good if it's on my mantle. Won't even do any good if it stays in the bow. The only good an arrow will do is if the arrow leaves me and is shot. And then God does that. But here's the thing. The second part of the instructions, the second part was take the arrows and strike the ground. That's my sphere. That's on me. And that's where I quit. I do some. But I quit. Why I quit? Why the king quit? We can guess. But I quit. And so that doesn't happen because I quit. And that's what Elisha was saying. It's quite a story, isn't it? Elisha's saying, King, if you had kept striking, if you had kept striking until you busted up those arrows, that was evidence that you would have exceeding, he used the word complete victory. But today, although you will get some victory, 
you won't get it. You won't get what God had planned. You won't get that sphere where the first arrow went. It won't accomplish. That will not be as effective than if you had continued to stray. Because in your heart, you are average. It comes down to that place. How much will I continue to stray? Will I just choose to be average? Will I just choose to be like others? Will I just choose to be like somebody else? Or will I strike until there's nothing left? It comes down to this place. The arrow's point is that it, it has to be used in order to be effective. It has to leave my control to be effective. Uh, may it be true that we don't die with our quiver full. Think about that phrase. I came across that and I go, whoa, that's profound. If a person comes back from battle and whatever took place in the battle, but if you still got arrows in your quiver, you didn't give it your all. You need to burn out every one of your arrows in battle. Because if you come back and there was anything left undone, it's on you. Because you didn't do everything. I'm not talking about striving. I'm not talking about working harder. I'm talking about having that place where Paul says, there's something I haven't taken hold of, which God has called me heavenward. And I push everything aside, and I take the arrows, and I smash them until there's nothing but a toothpick left. I settle for nothing less. I refuse to be average. I refuse to quit partway through. In fact, our greatest aspiration should be when we die, our quiver is empty. We need to strike it again. There's a New Testament parallel. It's a much shorter story, and I take you to a story of Jesus when Jesus shared Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And I want to read this story in Luke 11, verse 5. Then Jesus said to disciples, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you everything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, everybody say shameless audacity. Shameless audacity. This is the reason. Because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened in king james verse 8 says that the reason you get what you desire is because of your importunity now that's a word we don't use very often the niv other translations say because of your boldness in this particular one i read because of your shameless audacity i like it actually shameless audacity let me retell the story. A friend arrives at midnight. They've traveled all day. They've not eaten. They are weak from lack of food. They don't have a reserve like I do. They need food. They need it now. And so they come, and in desperation, it's late. They ask you, can they have some food so they can restore their strength? You discover your pantry's empty. It's not uncommon because 
they didn't have refrigeration systems, and so they would buy food in the morning. It would last the day. Your food, your pantry's empty. You'd used up everything. You don't have anything to offer your friend. The hour's horrible, and although that's true, although that's true, you bang boldly, shamelessly at the door of another friend of yours, someone nearby. And Jesus then makes this question. He, he asks this question. He says, which of you who has a friend standing at your door in, desperate, in, in desperation would honestly tell him, leave me alone, don't bother me? I mean, think about it. If you have a friend, if you have somebody you really trust and you rely on, and if he came to you at 1 in the morning or 12 at night and you were already in bed and he started and you knew it was him at the door, would you say, hey, go away, come back another day? Would you say, come back at 9 in the morning? Would you say, go home and text me? No, if, 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 if you knew who it was and the person is of reputable character, you would go and open the door. You would open the door not just because he's a friend, and that's the point in here. It wasn't just because he's a friend. You would open it because you know this person would not be banging on that door if it wasn't dire necessity. You'll open that door for that reason, because he had the nerve to come at that night. That's why you open the door. Because he was bold enough to come. That's why, because of his importunity, because of his importunity, you know you can't shrug this off. You've got to go and open that door. It wasn't because he's banging away hour after hour. Some translations have taken it that he was persistent. That's not a good translation. It's not the true rendering. Importunity does not simply mean persistence. Importunity means his unashamed boldness to have come at that hour and to have done it. And for that reason... For that reason, because of his posture, his troublesome urgency, Jesus says, for that reason, he receives. And then Jesus goes into the prayer and says, that's how you'll receive. Wow. That's how I'll get it too. Not simply because I'm a friend to Jesus. It's because you come to the place where you strike and you strike and you strike until there's nothing left. It's because you hold nothing back, because you refuse, the law, you refuse the law of average. You have the nerve. It's kind of like a mother who sees her young child drowning. Do you think the mother's going to worry about her modesty at that moment? Do you think she's worried about being reserved? Or is she going to scream like a maniac in order to save her child? And it's the same picture. As Paul talks about in Philippians, I must do it, he says. Not in the law of average. Not how much I can hold back and leave a little bit for another life. I'm going to burn it off in this life. When I get to the end, there's not going to be an arrow left in my quiver. There's not going to be anything left. I will have burned it all for the king. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.